the New South Wales Country Hour with Michael Condon on ABC Radio New South Wales. Hello again and welcome to the show coming up. Watch out for asbestos in the flood cleanup and also it'll take millions of dollars and years of hard work for the Lachlan River region to recover from this latest flood event. Very stressful and it just came, it's been coming for a while actually, but you know we kept thinking that the worst was over and then last weekend there was five inches of rain here and in the catchment and then we knew things were going to get really bad. It's been a really difficult time. We've lost fences, crops have been washed away, levee banks have broken, loosened pastures have been um, inundated with water. More on that story shortly. Also, you can always send us a text 0467 922 684 and let us know what's happening in your neck of the woods as well in regards to the flooding or anything else. Maybe uh, you're starting up on the harvest as well. Hopefully, fingers crossed, some people are in that boat. So uh, let us know. Send us a text 0467 922 684 is a number to text me here at the Country Hour. But first up today, we're hearing that the SES are helicoptering people out of Uabalong as we speak. The town uh, could be cut off for weeks and the latest from Forbes is that uh, authorities have found some 613 properties have been damaged, 480 have been inundated and 460 are uninhabitable and four have been destroyed. Uh, Also uh, roads cut as well, road damage as well. uh, To to get the latest situation from the SES we're joined by spokesperson Jessica Chaplin. Good afternoon. Hello. So what's the situation at Uabalon? Helicopters uh, moving people out? Yes, so yesterday an evacuate now notice was issued for Uabalon so that anyone who did want to evacuate could do so while we were still able to access them and get them out safely. Uh, So far, nobody has, has taken up that, but the evacuate now notice is still in place. So if anyone in Uabalon does want to evacuate... They should follow that notice, go to the uh, registration point at the Royal Hotel pub and pass on their contact details to the sector commander there so that we can get them out. So at the situation there, it's still a major flood? Yes, so there's, there's still still major flooding there and the the communities there has still been um, working on, on doing some sandbagging and, yeah. Mm. And what's the situation in Condobla and Deniloquin as well? Yes, so uh, at Condobolin, uh the river level's 7.38 and still steady. And in Deniloquin, it's currently at a moderate level at 9.1 metres and falling. Okay, so and the, within the town, some obviously some flooding issues there. The Great Wall of Condobolin, though, holding up? Holding up, there's still a lot of water around, so we do ask that people in the areas still keep an eye on the SES website and, and look out for our warnings and, and follow the advice that's there. And water still heading down to Deniliquin there? Is that flood level likely to peak higher than that? So the Deniliquin uh, peaked on Tuesday, right? and it's currently at a moderate level and falling. Okay. And the damage that we're hearing, uh, that's coming to light in regards to Forbes. Hundreds of houses uh, inundated, uh, many, many damaged, hundreds damaged, and uh, 460 uninhabitable as well at this stage. That's correct. The teams have been 
uh, going in and doing rapid damage assessments around around Forbes. Um, you mentioned earlier, I believe there's been around 600 assessments done so far. Yep, six, 600 properties have been damaged according to the, the latest figures we're getting from the SES. Correct. Yep. So and that's the, yeah, yeah, they've done that many damage assessments. But 460 uninhabitable for now, or is is it longer term there, there, it's an issue? We'll be continuing to, to monitor the, the situation there and, and go through our, our damage assessment process, yeah. And the road situation, still major highways still cut and, uh, you know, the local roads still cut? Yeah, we're asking people to do continue to check live traffic uh, to find out what the roads, road situation is in your area. Okay, but uh, many of them cut, I gather, and uh, big potholes in some of them, so driving with caution is, is recommended. Jessica, thanks for your time on the program today. No worries. Good to talk to you. It's uh, 10 minutes past 12 here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, uh, Central West Farmer says it will take millions of dollars and years of hard work for the region to recover from the latest flood event. Farmers along the Lachlan River have been inundated with flood water after last week's heavy falls. Condoblin mixed farmer Diane Fear says they've never seen anything like it before. Never. It's um, been quite an interesting experience, very stressful and... Yeah, it's, it just came, it's been coming for a while actually, but you know, we kept thought, thinking that the worst was over. And then last weekend on Saturday after, no, Sunday it was, there was five inches of rain here and in the catchment and then we knew things were going to get really bad. Mm. What impact has it had on, on your farming here? It's been a really t- difficult time. We've lost fences, crops have been washed away, levee banks have broken. Loosened pastures have been um, inundated with water. Luckily, we haven't had any cattle that um, we've had managed to keep them on high ground. But like most people around this district, this flood and and the level of rainfall that's happened is is going to um, make crops very difficult to A, get off, and B, um, a lot of crops will be downgraded. What do you estimate um, the damage is in terms of your crop losses? Well over fifty percent, and well over fifty percent. Most look, and it depends where you are here. You know, some people uh, that aren't impacted by this flood are on on higher ground. They'll still be impacted. You know, up to twenty percent, or or if not more, just just with the heavy rainfalls. So, yeah, it's it's going to be a really um, difficult time going forward and and I guess once the floodwaters come down it'll be a time to start to assess what actual damage what infrastructure there has to be done to repair um, fencing um, levee banks um, all that type of thing yeah um, perhaps as you say it's a bit too early to say but do you have a figure in terms of the cost of of what the impact of this flood has been not just on your crops but on on all the rest of it as well Look, I'd hate to put a figure on that at this stage. <laughs> like to be optimistic, but look, I know, look, generally speaking in the region, there's going to be millions and millions of dollars of crop, of crops um, that, that that income won't be coming in. Um, and of course, the larger side of things, that impacts local businesses because those uh, farmers won't have that money to spend in the local area. So it's a bit of a, um, a flow-on effect. And then, of course, really... The, just fixing up the roads, that's, that is going to be massive. 
where do you turn your attention to, I suppose, as the floodwaters start to recede a little bit? I know it's a slow journey. It doesn't happen overnight. Of course, this level of water will take weeks. But what do you think your first sort of priorities will be and, and how do you recover from this? Look, I think rural people are pretty resilient by nature. We, we, we go through floods and droughts and um, ice plagues and, and everything. So I think we need to all take a breath. Um, it was quite a lot of adrenaline and um, stress with the flood peaking and I think we're all starting to feel a little bit more normal now. It's, it's um, receding. So it'll take a few weeks for this water to come down um, and then just slowly try and, and, and really, you know, take a day at a time, really, get, get on our feet and, you know, work towards um, pulling our farms back together, getting fences up and um, just going from there. What has the support been like from, from other uh, farming families and individuals uh, throughout this period? It's been fantastic. I mean, I think that's one of the best things about living in a rural area. The community support's amazing. So when we were trying to fill a hut uh, in a levy bank last week, we had, I think, nearly 10 local um, people come out and help fill sandbags and ferry them across in a tinny. Um, so everybody is, is there for each other, and I think that's, that's just... That's what makes everybody, you know, keep going and get through tough times like this, yeah. Depending on the amount of damage, look, it'll, it'll take potentially years, you know. W- w- it's going to be hard getting contractors in as well because because everybody's going through the same thing, so everybody needs fencing, everybody needs levy banks fixed up. So it could, it, you know, we'd like to do what we can as soon as possible, but then going forward... Um, you've still got to get a crop in next year. You've still got the normal day-to-day things to make money. Um, so some of the, some of the um, longer-term things will take longer, yeah. It is unbelievable, like unbelievable. You just, you just cannot imagine. I mean, the volume of water that came down, it was just, um, yeah. I mean, I, I was, I'm still in shock at how much water there, there is around, so... It's, and if you'd spoken to me last week, I'd probably be still in tears. But, you know, we're just all getting over it and moving on. So, and, and as I said, the local community's been fantastic. Condobelin farmer Diane Fear speaking there with Ainsley Drewitt-Smith. And Bernadette Crouch is also a mixed farmer from the area and says the damage bill will be immense. I'd hate to try and put a figure on it at the moment. We, we've lost all of our fodder. You know, we've lost crops, we're, you know, we're paying adjustment. I, I would, we'll leave that out to the accountant. I don't know. It's going to take a very, very, very long time to recover from this. A very long time. The last thing we need is more loans. That's the last thing we need. If, you know, we need support to try and get everyone back on their feet and, you know, our jobs to feed and clothe the country, so, or the world, really. So we need, we do need to have the backing of the government to help us get back to that point so we can be productive. And, and how long? Well, for us, um, it's a, the, the flood is still rising in our place. I know it's dropped in town uh, since the flood peaked on Sunday night. It has dropped 20 centimetres in uh, town. But for us out on our property, we're still rising. So we've risen since Sunday, we've risen 18 centimetres. So, and we need the river to go down for our water to pass through. So we're going to be many, many, many months before we can even look at our property so I spoke with my husband yesterday about when does he think if it didn't rain anymore when could we could we start driving home and it's it's going to be six months before we can start driving home we'll be able to get back in once the roads open we'll be able to use the boat to get to get home 
and then side by side and then when everything dries out we won't have a road but we'll be able to drive somewhere I'm assuming to get in. Bernadette Crouch speaking about the effects of the flooding in the central west there. It's coming up to 17 minutes past 12 on the country. Our communities and properties along the Darling River in the state's west are facing inundation as they get cut off by floodwaters. Burke has been isolated from uh, most of uh, the parts south in, uh, into New South Wales, uh, not into Queensland though, and nearby villages are seeing waters rise. Jane Murray farms at Louth and Tilpa running sheep and goats and she told Hannah Joes that the situation is putting a significant strain on their operations. Most of the river country either has water on it or you know, we've had to push stock to the outer extremities in, in front of the water so that, you know, you haven't got sheep stuck behind uh, water, so to speak. Quite a fair bit of our country is uh, red ground, but of the black ground country, uh, you know, I was just chatting with my husband then, and we think probably something around, you know, seven parts out of ten. If it doesn't have water on it, it's impacted by water, so you've had to push the sheep away. You know, the, the flood situation that we're in, we generally speaking have ample notice that it's coming and this time the the preparation this time has just been hampered by the, <clears throat> the on and off uh, rain events that have happened because you know then stops you sort of getting around on the ground so there has been some plants that you, know, you haven't been able to move to perhaps where you wanted it. Right. And how long have you had water through the black ground at your property there? Well it would have started back in um, October and uh, just of course has steadily increased um, from that point. We don't have that flash flooding type ordeal that others are unfortunately having to deal with. This is just a, a slow, steady, encroaching way of life. If you live on the, if you live on the Darling River, you're going to have to put up with floods. Now you run uh, merinos and rangeland goats on your property there. How are they all doing? Yeah, well the goats are, the goats are a bit of a funny, funny creature. They don't particularly like water, so they'll just sort of sit on high ground and climb up trees and on logs and things. They can be a bit difficult to um, encourage to move through water to get out of that situation. Uh, sheep, yes, which with the constant weather interruptions that we've been having, there's been an, an impact there by fly. Plus we were lambing still at the time when we need to be shifting sheep for to keep ahead of the, the encroaching floodwaters. So we had to make a bit of a call there with some of the sheep that uh, between uh, the Darling River and a, and a creek that runs through us, we have some of those sort of stuck in between the, the creek and the and the river. But we've been able to keep moving them so that they're not, you know, little little islands or anything like that. Yeah, so there's been a bit of activity around dealing with the fly. It's going to be difficult to get the contractor uh, and his team manoeuvre them around inside. So we did that part ourselves just across a couple of weeks. The next thing we'll be dealing with is crutching um, in general. We've got a class happening at the moment, classing our young ewes. Uh, so it was a bit of a logistical exercise to get to get Chris here. And how did you get your um, classer in? Our son flew to Hay and picked him up because he comes from the Riverina area, so he's starting to be impacted too. So uh, it was it was helpful to him that that. that and, and to us, obviously, that we have um, a couple of pilots in the family. So they flew to Hay. Dermot picked him up, uh, took him, uh, brought him back here to a road airstrip. And then he's boated, he and my husband have boated here to our house. And then this morning, uh, my husband and Chris have uh, flown out. Uh, we've got a small helicopter of our own. And then they'll 
chop her back in this afternoon. All these logistical challenges, does that amount to a significant extra cost on your operations? Yes, it would because you're, you're utilising your helicopter and your, your aeroplane a lot more and you, we're also ferrying some of our full-time workers that live uh, on some of our other properties that adjoin us. You know, they've all each got their own home, uh, so you've got to fly to there, pick them up, fly them to wherever the work is, is happening. Talking about the situation at Louth there, uh, Jane Murray in the Berkshire talking to Hannah Joes. It's uh, coming up to 21 minutes past 12. Well, flood-hit communities are being told to be wary about exposure to asbestos during cleanups of damaged houses and sheds that's uh, happening all over the state at the moment. Researchers found that more than 50% of homeowners don't know how to deal with asbestos and dispose of it safely, despite it being found in many homes built before 1990. This week is Asbestos Awareness Week, and CEO Justine Ross says thousands of people lose their lives due to exposure to these deadly fibres. They don't know they have it in their home. So if a home's built before 1990, good chance that it contains some asbestos. So they're not aware of where it is, and if they do come across it, they don't know what to do with it. That's the problem. And they could disturb it and then release the deadly, deadly fibres and become exposed. And we hear that, like, thousands of people die of asbestos, uh, you know, lung disease every year. We estimate that over 4,000 Australians um, are dying of asbestos-related diseases each year. Um, and we know that around 700 Australians are dying of um, mesothelioma, which is um, a terrible cancer um, and incurable. And this is, I mean, I guess heightened by the fact that we're seeing flooding in many regions and many regions of New South Wales affected by flooding. Lismore, lots of those houses up there, they'd be filled with asbestos. Yep. Lots of the houses in the Central West that are, you know, that are being destroyed are filled with asbestos. So it's timely, we, we think, it's, it's timely to be careful. You know, asbestos materials would be present in many of the flood-affected areas in the clean-up. Now, wet materials are not considered as dangerous as dry materials. But once they do become dry, they, they will be a risk. Um, it can be managed safely in those flood-affected areas. You need to know what to, to look out for. So mainly in the form of flat or corrugated sheeting, you know, what we call fibro and used for walls, either internal cladding or external cladding. But it's really Im important that it's, that it's handled safely. And, it, and timely in the flood situation that... People are aware of that because there's a lot of material out there. I was in Lismore, looks like a lot of asbestos sheeting on the ground or out in front of people's houses. Be a similar situation, Ugaura, Forbes, uh, Condoblin, you know, e even on farms too. Yeah, yeah. And there's some really clear do's and don'ts when it comes to um, asbestos-containing materials. So, you know, when you're cleaning up, not to, not to break it any, not to break it up, not to use high pressure water on it, not to use any sort of abrasive scrubber, scrubbers, um, and keep it separate from, from other waste if, if that's at all possible. If it's possible to get the professionals in to follow the emergency service advices as well, um, you know, and there's also contractors on the ground, so there'll be asbestos removalist contractors on the, on the ground knowing what, and they know what they're doing. And are, are there enough of them around, and particularly in regards to flood recovery and flood, flood uh, repair? 
Well, when one of these events happens, um, asbestos assessors and removalists are called in from basically all over all over Australia. But if there's not enough of them on the ground, um, there's some good information out there about what people can do. Um, to keep safe around asbestos-containing materials. You know, you need to wear gloves. I think everybody's used to now the P2 mask. need to have a P2 mask on, wear protective overalls. You pick up pieces of asbestos, you don't break them. You pick them up and you put them into a bag and then you double bag. But there's a lot of information, particularly in, um, in New South Wales, there's some good information on the on government websites about what to do in this situation. Justine Ross is the CEO of the Asbestos Safety and Eradication Agency, 25 minutes past 12. Well, still on flooding news, and in recent weeks you heard about the stock losses that have been happening in Victoria and New South Wales due to the flooding. Tens of thousands of cattle, thousands of sheep. Well, it isn't just having an impact on large animals. A beekeeper has lost around 360 hives due to flooding on the Hay Plains. Echuca and Moama beekeeper Bradley Jackson says it's wiped out 30% of his production. It's been hard watching when you can't get to them and the water is, um, keeps rising and you're trying to pull them out of the water and you can't. It's pretty heartbreaking watching your stock um, drown like that, I suppose you could say. There's some of the Hay Plains. Um, that's the most significant part I've had out there and the flooding has been rising faster than I can get to them. Um, the rains, it's rained that much. The countries that wet the ground that you can't actually move some places, can't drive trucks or loaders, even walk in there. Are any more of the hives that you've got at risk, do you think? If it continues to rise in um, places, yeah, there'd be a lot more, yeah. A lot more hives um, of these will be um, affected, yeah, most definitely. Are you looking at trying to relocate them or is it too late to do that? Uh, We've been trying to do that the best we can. We'll consistently keep at it until we can get them all out um, to higher ground. A lot of um, farmers, I will say, have been really, really helpful. Um, you know, close contact with me and that, just letting us know that it's coming better, it's higher, or, you know, the bank might bust, and actually helping us try to uh, get the stock out, So, which has been good. You were telling me earlier that you feel like you've been chased by floodwaters. So where did your first challenges with rising rivers and rainfall come from? Uh, from the Darling River. I um, started up there at the start of the season. As you know, the Darling River has been in flood. There's a lot of water up there there's been. And it just, as I moved away from it, and again, it rained and rained up there on the Darling River um, earlier in the season. And um, it's uh, trying to move them to get away from there, which we did. We lost no hives at all up there, luckily. Very, very lucky I was. And as we've come down, each river has just risen again and again and again due to the rain. So, um, yeah, that's just it's chased me from the Darling River, I suppose, to the Murray. Are these hives that you've lost insured? They are insured, but not for flood water. Are you likely to try and replace them? Yeah, I will try to replace them, um, which I will. Um, as the uh, water receives, we'll get what's uh, recoverable, um, which most probably nothing really will be out of them. Um, the boxes will be, uh, be uh, all waterlogged and cracked. So when they dry out, so I'll uh, yeah, most definitely try and um, rebuild them immediately as soon as the water goes. Echuca Moama beekeeper Bradley Jackson speaking with Kelly Hollingworth. You're listening to The Country Hour on ABC Radio New South Wales. 
New South Wales macadamia growers are experiencing a shocker of a year. For the last few years, prices have been high due to growing global demand for our native nut, but this year they were hit by floods and now the price has dropped by half. Marquee Macadamias, the world's largest macadamia processor, paid its Australian growers more than $6 a kilo nut in shell a couple of years ago, but dropped it by a dollar last year. The price has been cut again, this time to $2.90. Chief Executive Officer Larry McHugh told Kim Honan that he doesn't think growers will ever see $6 again. It's a combination of a lot of things, but basically um, it started in COVID when demand fell a little bit and then um, we started running running into bigger crops. And This year the world crop has actually gone from about 250,000 tonnes last year to 300,000 tonnes this year. So there's been a massive spike in the world crop and the world crop's also going to continue to grow over the next 10 years. So the whole industry has to, has to um, start into marketing in, in a big way and just continue marketing for over 10 years now probably. Do you think the world, including Australia, has planted too many macadamias and done so before securing those markets? No, I don't. And it's, it's very difficult to secure a market when you don't actually have products. So you, know, you can go and talk to people about macadamias, but it's not until you actually have the product that you can start the sales. The, and you know, the, the world crop in, in 10 years' time is probably going to be around 600,000 tonnes. There's no problem with the world market absorbing all that kernel. The biggest issue is just when you get a huge spike in, in production in one year. And you know, this year we've seen uh, around a, a 20% spike in, in, in production. And that you can't build markets that quickly. The lower prices now are really um, piquing the interest of a lot of people around the world, yeah. including very large manufacturers. Yeah, and how long has it been since prices were this low? Uh, 2006 and seven um, was the last the last time the industry had a, a really big price decline, and there was a, a similar situation to this, a, a, a brief oversupply. Um, but we did climb out of that, and we saw good prices for I don't know, 16 years or 15 years after that. So, well, how long do you think it's going to take for the the, the, the to, to climb back those prices? Uh, I think that next year we're going to see similar prices to, to this year, maybe maybe a little bit lower. Um, after that, hopefully we we become stable and just slowly climb. So, two to three years. Mm. And to get to six dollars per kilo, how long do you reckon that might take? I don't know that we'll be going back to six dollars a kilo. I think the when we were at $6 a kilo, the world crop was, was smaller and not growing as quickly. So now the most important thing at the moment is to, is to grow um, both geographically into new regions and to grow our, our current customers. And, and to do that, we, we have to make sure that we're competitive with other nuts and, and other replacement foods that people might, might use instead of macadamias. Well, given the instability at the moment, have we seen a halt in investment in the industry? Are, you know, no new plantings or, or properties being exchanged. Uh, not as yet. Um, there's still there's still a lot of planting going on, and there was a lot of planned planting that was uh, for, for over the next five years, which I believe is still going to go ahead. Um, on a five-year horizon, it's actually not a bad time to plant because um, in in the past, within five years, uh, when the trees start actually producing, the price would have been back up again, and you're you're in a in a producing. You know, trees are producing whilst the, the price is going up, um, but there will be there will be an effect and, and slowing of, of planting and a, and a slowing of sales. Chief Executive Larry McHugh, uh, who's actually stepping down as CEO of Marquee Macadamias after thirty years with the company.
He was talking to Kim Honan. It's 28 minutes to one. It's uh, We'll get some weather details shortly. Fine weather on the way, uh, generally speaking. So that's good news. Let's find out what's happening with the news. And Adam Story, good afternoon. Afternoon, Michael. There's been a, a very big uh, drug bust uh, with uh, New South Wales police breaking up a major drug ring that was operating over several continents to smuggle drugs into Australia. Um, they've seized more than $300 million worth of methamphetamine and cocaine uh, during an 18-month-long investigation. And uh, six men have been arrested after 16 police raids were carried out across uh, Greater Sydney yesterday. So, yeah, quite weekend for some. <laughs> <laughs> um, the uh, Senior Coalition MP Stuart Robert... <coughs> says he completely denies allegations raised this morning in nine newspapers. Uh, the Herald and The Age have published leaked emails suggesting Mr Roberts secretly gave advice to Synergy 360 in 2017 and 2018 um, to, and helped the company meet senior political figures. Uh, now, the allegations don't constitute uh, any illegal conduct. Uh, still in politics, but in New South Wales... Um, Bit of argy-bargy going on in the shooters, shooters fishers and farmers uh, with Orange MP Phil Donato uh, joining Barwon MP Roy Butler in threatening to run as uh, independents at the March election if Robert Borsak doesn't leave politics. Um, uh, they've called on uh, Mr Borsak to quit after he said a female independent MP should have been clocked. And Mr Donato says that's not the path that he wants to take with the party. So some interesting discussions yeah. to be held there. Uh, overseas, monsoonal rains are hampering rescue efforts in the wake of the earthquake in Indonesia, which has killed more than 270 people. Scores of people are still missing, uh, many of them in homes covered by landslides. Uh, Facebook's parent company, Meta, uh, says individuals associated with the US military are linked to an online propaganda campaign. Um, uh, it's Now, this campaign supports the US and its allies while opposing countries such as Russia, China and Iran. Uh, and it included u using fake personas and artificially, fish artificially generated images across multiple platforms. Mm. So there's some high-tech cyber warfare. What they're saying that they're, uh, they're uh, like attacking the well, company or what's the... Well, no, no. It's, they're just using Facebook to get across this oh, propaganda, I okay, as I suppose, yeah, as, yeah, as part yeah. of the, the Ukraine uh, campaign. Mm. Now, they're not saying it's actually officially backed by the military, but they're saying there are a group of individuals within the military who have been Seem doing this. Seem to have some links. Yeah. Yes. Um, it, it's not treasonous because they, they are supporting their own country, <laughs> at least. So. <laughs> Yes, but it's probably yeah. not within the rules of Facebook. Uh, probably meta. not. No, they 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 say they have taken it down, and they right. say it's the first type of uh, online propaganda that they've taken down that's um, involved. They're people pretty slow to take propaganda down from Facebook. It's, actually, yeah. <laughs> generally speaking. <laughs> yeah, there's judging a very long process you've got to go through to get the, something judging down. Judging by the stuff yeah. that my son shows me every now and then yeah. on Facebook. Yeah. <laughs> And on to uh, something I know nothing about, cryptocurrency. All right. <laughs> oh, come on, Nick. No, I had another discussion over the weekend about crypto, and I thought, geez, I almost Worked got my head out. around this, and then, yeah, yeah. just, nah, no, idea. still, still yeah. lost. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the company tasked with locking down the assets of the failed exchange FTX says it's managed to recover and secure more than $1 billion in assets so far, but they're saying that's only a fraction of the potentially mm. billions of dollars believed to be missing from the company's coffers somewhere in the Bahamas. <laughs> 
Bahamas, mm. yep, the Cayman Islands. Caymans, yep. yeah, lots of... <laughs> you name it. Lots of lovely places. <laughs> Beautiful. <laughs> Beautiful one day, perfect the next. Yeah. Okay, all right. Especially when you've got a billion dollars. Yeah. Mm. I don't know whether that's a billion in crypto or cold hard cash, but... Yeah, I'd, I'd go for the cash. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thanks for that, Adam. And you have the latest crypto news. There you go. I'm the man for the yeah, that's it. You're the you're the man for it. It's uh, coming up to uh, 24 minutes to one here on the country. Alenka Jumars at the bureau. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Michael. So we're seeing a reprieve from the rain for a while. Yes, yeah, certainly are, and it is all due to a high-pressure system which is gradually making its way um, across New South Wales over the next couple of days. It is expected to bring the odd shower and uh, potentially the odd thunderstorm um, to eastern coastal districts over the next uh, couple of days, um, but generally speaking, the remainder of the week is uh, expected to be mostly dry across uh, particularly inland areas. Uh, and with those uh, temperatures warming up gradually over the next few days, um, noting that we have had uh, fairly cool conditions, particularly inland um, uh, after uh, these fronts which moved through earlier in the week. Do we have any rain systems on the way? Um, So over the weekend, we are expecting a trough to approach uh, from the west. Uh, That will bring some uh, shower and thunderstorm activity across uh, most districts, uh, mostly during Sunday, but uh, it does look to be, um, uh, it does look as though we're not expected to see uh, very significant rainfall with this. Uh, it will be uh, fairly isolated thunderstorms, although the threat area will be fairly widespread. Uh, thunderstorms are expected to be uh, mostly isolated and uh, most likely about the uh, far southeast, uh, particularly about the southern ranges and southwest slopes, where we may see some severe thunderstorms during Sunday. Um, but generally speaking, um, it is expected to be whilst unstable, uh, not, uh, no significant rain uh, expected uh, over at least the next uh, three to four days. Um, now, as this trough does head uh, across New South Wales, um, by Monday it will sit about the northeastern parts of the state. Um, we will see that uh, threat of thunderstorms and showers. Um, increasing about the northeast during Monday and Tuesday, with the potential to see some showers persisting about the northeast uh, for the remainder of next week. But at this stage, looks like uh, Monday, Tuesday uh, will be a bit stormy and a bit showery, um, generally across uh, the northeast and eastern districts, with uh, inland areas remaining um, fairly dry uh, for most of next week. Um, now, once this uh, trough does move through over the weekend, we will see a return to these cooler uh, conditions particularly inland. So uh, the first half of next week may be once again a bit cooler than average uh, across inland areas. So when you say about the system moving to the northeast of the state, maybe, uh, uh, you know, sort of Moree or, f- or are we looking further east and maybe in the north coast that might get some rain? Yeah, certainly anywhere from sort of that northwest slopes and plains, so about uh, Moree area, extending right to the coast, so towards um, the northern rivers and even down towards the mid-north coast and even parts of the Hunter uh, may still see uh, some of that rainfall. So generally that entire northeast corner um, quadrant of New South Wales. As we head towards the second half of the week, we may we will see those showers contract more to the coastal districts, so about the northern rivers, um, potentially parts of the New England and down towards the mid-north coast um, as there is some indication of maybe some showers persisting um, with uh, the next feature moving through later next week. But it's hard to know how much rain. I mean, it's a fair way out. 
Yeah, that's right. It is still a little bit uncertain. Um, our guidance is suggesting that we may start to see a coastal trough developing, but certainly there is uh, quite a lot of variability in um, what is exactly going to happen next week and um, the impact that will have on the northeast and the north coast. Um, but certainly there is uh, the potential to see some of those showers persisting uh, for much of next week about the northeast. Um, but at this stage, uh, we're more certain that we will see showers and storms during Monday and Tuesday at least. Okay, so we'll watch it uh, with interest. Alenka, thanks for that. Thanks very much, Michael. Alenka Juma at the Bureau. It's 20 minutes to one here on the New South Wales Country Hour. Well, as we heard yesterday, the latest State of the Climate report's out. It's not that crash hot. The temperature is heading up. The climate is warm by an average of 1.47 degrees since national records began. That's uh, uh, bringing it close to that 1.5 degree limit that was uh, talked about in the Paris Agreement. And uh, it's had people wondering about the wisdom of uh, the sort of things people used to talk about in the old days with sayings like, when the dew's on the grass, rain will never come to pass, or red sky at night, shepherd's delight, or red sky in the morning, shepherd's warning. Well, uh, have we actually seen some changes in some of those sayings? Are they still relevant today? It's something that uh, Dr. Edward Doddridge, a research fellow at Physical Oceanography at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania, has been looking at, and he spoke uh, yesterday to Paul Turton. It's important to remember that 1.5 degrees is just this average value. Uh, and so for a lot of fruits, the seasons are really important. So things like apples and blueberries, they need to have a certain amount of cold. And if they don't get enough cold, then you can't have any fruits. So, for example, as Tasmania warms, it may eventually get to the point where we can't grow apples anymore, which will be a bit of a shock for us all down here. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, and and there's only so far south we can go. I mean, we can grow them in Antarctica, but what then? Yes, indeed. So this is a, a real problem for, say, Atlantic salmon farmers in Tasmania because they need to be pretty near the coast because otherwise it's really hard to get to your farm. And they're running out of south coast, right? You can't go any further south. You just run out of run out of Tasmania. So is that the logic, logical thing that we'll see happen? Like bananas will just start migrating south, you know, um, depending on, on, you know, what prevailing weather conditions. And the interesting part is he said that we're dealing with averages when we look at these overall changes. I mean, it, it is feasible, isn't it, or possible at least that some locations might not change at all? It is. Um, it's unlikely that they won't have any changes. Um, but in terms of growing bananas further south or things moving, we're already seeing that, both in the natural world and in agriculture. You know, Tasmania now has vineyards that grow grapes that wouldn't have grown here when I was born, just a, you know, a few decades ago. Um, so we're seeing these changes already. And in terms of the natural world, we're seeing species turning up in Tasmanian waters that have never been found here before. There's a great citizen science project called RedMap where people take photos on their phone of unusual species. And someone uploaded a photo of a tropical yellow-bellied sea snake on a Tasmanian beach, which is just mind-blowing. Well, it's a, it's a hell of a swim, isn't it? It certainly is. <laughs> so what about these old expressions? Have you grown up with any of these? Have your parents and grandparents had these little expressions or maybe in your research you, you've uncovered some of them? Yeah, absolutely. So there's a famous one in Hobart down here. So we have our, our big agricultural show the fourth Saturday of October. So it's always the end of October, kind of spring. And the, the wisdom is you should never plant your tomatoes before show day. Because if you do, it's too cold, they're going to wither and die, and you won't get any tomatoes. Uh, but it doesn't work anymore because the temperature has been warming here. 
If you look at the average temperatures through the 1900s and then for the last 30 years, you can see that that sort of tomato threshold that we used to cross at the end of October, we now cross it nearly three weeks earlier. So early October, you can plant your tomatoes. Um, so I'm down here promoting gardening heresy to everyone who will listen. So what about Red Sky at Night Shepherd's Delight? Can we still rely on that one? Oh, I'm not sure. That, so that depends where you are. If you're in Tasmania, where the weather comes from the west, that one works a little bit, right? Yeah. Because if it's red in the morning, that means it's a clear sky out to the east and you've got clouds to the west for the sun to land on. So the weather comes from the west, the clouds are coming towards you. Uh, but if you're further north, closer to the equator, where the weather comes from the east or quite tropical, where it just sort of comes from wherever, this is never going to work for you, unfortunately. Edward, in your specialist field, um, in you know, in the marine world, how adaptable are the species? You know, the immediate thing that comes to mind with changing climate, and we we hear the warnings all the time. It's about extinction of, of some species. Given given that, as yeah. you say, there's only so far south we can go for the cooler weather. Yeah, so some species are really resilient, and some aren't. So you can think of some things like tropical corals, where the Great Barrier Reef is having a pretty tough time lately with all of the bleaching and the warming. Um, there is potentially hope that it will move south. And in fact, some tropical corals have been found growing and surviving the winter now near Sydney, which is outside of their historical range. But for things like the Tasmanian giant kelp, for example, they're in real trouble. You know, there's, there's nowhere south for them to go to escape the heat as it marches down from the equator. And so we've lost a lot of our giant kelp beds already, I don't want to be a, a harbinger of doom, but there's not a lot that we can do, right? That's yeah, pretty much gone, which is really sad. Dr. Edward Doddridge is a research fellow at the Institute for Marine and Antarctic Studies in Tasmania. He was talking there to Paul Turton. It's 14 to 1. Well, we've all heard the troubling stories of farmers dumping fruit and vegetables because they can't be sold or they can't find pickers or the food doesn't meet supermarket specifications. Well, it's estimated that a quarter of all food grown is wasted before it even leaves the farm. But the CSIRO has been working with an Australian startup company to turn that waste into healthy snacks, as David Clawton reports. Nutri-V's first processing module is located on the farm of their parent company, Fresh Select. That's one of Australia's largest brassica growers and a long-term coal supplier. The waste cauliflowers, broccoli and pumpkins are picked and sorted in the mornings, washed and then dried and turned into powder, which is used to make the snacks all on the same day. I met Nutri-V CEO Raquel Said at the CSIRO's Ag Catalyst event in Sydney, where she explained more about the concept. Nutri-V is a food manufacturing business, but essentially what we're trying to do is take food waste from our partner farm, taking all of the vegetables that can't be harvested um, and turning them into high-nutrient vegetable powders, and those powders are now the star ingredient in our uh, Nutri-V goodies snacks. So something that would otherwise have gone to waste is now being repurposed into a food that Australians can enjoy. Right. And... There's a lot of waste, isn't there? Like, and that's a big business. Are, they're supplying yeah. coal, so they're doing thousands of tonnes, I imagine, every year. How, what's the waste stat from that operation? Yes, yeah, so that's a really good question. Uh, just pure waste, there can be 
you know, up to about 15 tonnes a week of waste matter. Um, that's excess leaves, stalks. Um, it can be from a, an oversupply. It can be weather damage. Sometimes they're just out of spec, too big, too small. That's um, a large number of waste that we're, we're dealing with. It's been a heartbreaking problem, hasn't it? We've seen uh, fruit and vegetable dumped all around the country for yeah. all sorts of reasons. That's right, that's and right. So this maybe could provide a solution to that problem. That's right. And, you know, if you were only in Melbourne a couple of days ago, you would have noticed that we got a large amount of hail in spring. That kind of environmental impact can cause a lot of damage. It's real. It's there. You know, those crops will be damaged. They will probably be rejected because they, you know, they don't look a certain way or they've been um, impacted. So it's a real-life example of how we can be taking that produce. Um, It might not sound sexy, vegetable powders, but let me tell you, we're making an impact and we're able to make a difference to farmers and to Australians so I think it's a good initiative to get behind. So what do these snacks made from waste food taste like? I asked a couple of people at the conference. <laughs> wow that's crunchy. Very crunchy. And it looks more like a like a breakfast cereal almost or a twisty but brown. Nice bite sizes. Mm-hmm. Very crunchy. Yeah. I like them. Oh, really? They taste like um have you ever had those uh, bean snaps? Like very similar, but yeah. like quite sweet in comparison. So this is um, created from waste stuff on the farm that doesn't meet specs or there's no market. Mm. So they, they grind it up, dry it, turn it into a snack like that and deliver it to the supermarket the same day. So is that, is that appealing? It's very cool. I like that. <laughs> I like not wasting food. Andrew Lawrence from the CSIRO was involved in testing and proving up the equipment to grind up and dry the vegetables before handing it to Nutrivi to commercialise. He says there's a big health advantage in snacks produced from powdered vegetables. What the Nutrivi goodies actually bring along is those two servings of, of vegetables in each pack. So why fresh is best, um, you know, this is an easy, an easy way to, to consume those vegetables. Dr Michael Robertson is the director of CSIRO Agriculture and Food, which has been working with a number of start-up companies on new ideas in agriculture. It's a beautiful example um, of uh, us turning what would be waste into a high-value product. So it's a really lovely example of how agriculture is getting more and more conscious about recycling and reducing its environmental footprint. But not only that, it also is a great example of how we can use our pilot plant to help startups like Raquel's test the technology prove that it works, and then take it into their own business and scale it. Meanwhile, Raquel Said is planning the next stage of the project, which is about scaling up the business. The uh, initial idea was the plant that we have in Werribee South was almost our sort of um, feeder and testing plant to see is this concept actually viable. We understand that that salad bowl region in Victoria isn't the only waste issue uh, catchment area. It's a problem all across Australia, right? So if uh, the fact that it's working now, we've got plans to actually put drying hubs across different growing areas of Australia and we think that could really make an impact to farmers all across Australia. How much this equipment will cost on farm is not clear yet, but consumers can taste the snacks now as they're being distributed through Coles. David Clawton with that report. Well, uh, we heard yesterday that uh, uh, that issue in regards to the federal court decision to dismiss a $53 million Hendra vaccination class action. Well, a hunter-based horse owner says she's very disappointed with that decision. Queensland and New South Wales horse owners were aggrieved over the alleged deaths and side effects from the vaccine. However, the judge found there were too many uncertainties to find the vaccine caused any serious side effects. Sue Middleton told Kelly Johnson she's one of many who believe they've lost a horse due to the vaccine. I was one of many people who lost a horse 
um, I'd put together a database I'd been collecting over time and over 110 horses that owners believed had died after vaccination and a lot of those formed the, um, the basis of this case. Now, the case has come to a close. What's your reaction to the result? Um, very, very disappointed, um, certainly, for the result, but we do have to take away the positives that we got the case to court, which in itself was um, quite a challenge. And in your, or you said that you had a horse um, you believe died after taking the vaccine? Yeah. I found him a couple of days afterwards with a, a, a temperature of almost 41 degrees, um, which is very high. Um, he couldn't walk. He couldn't eat. Um, it was mid-July, so I spent a couple of hours cold hosing him to try and get his temperature down because he was an old horse. Hmm. Um, getting his temperature down, I'd owned him for almost all of his life. I'd never seen anything like this in him before. I knew the horse very well. And then I phoned the vet in the morning and asked him to come out and have a look at him. Um, he was in a sad state and he just, he, he lived for four months. But he had constant temperature spikes, often every second day, probably for the first month, of almost 41 degrees, um, which is not a very good thing to do to an elderly horse. And um, he had swollen legs. He had what's called head pressing and neurological disorder. Um, he lost weight, he lost muscle tone, he went lame, um, oh, a very large long list of reactions that he had. I was just struggling to get any food into him mm. and keep his temperature down because every time his temperature spiked, he didn't want to eat. So he was just wasting away. Even though it wasn't the result you wanted from the class action today, it did make it to court. There is a lot of um, discussion now about this vaccine. You said yourself this is something you would never give your horses again? Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah, I've told many people. I've told the leaders that there's no way any more of my horses. I vaccinated 15 horses at the time, and I lost one, so that's not very good odds. Yeah. And I've never given it to any of my others, and I never purchased a horse that's ever had it. Hunter Valley uh, horse owner Sue Middleton and uh, the animal pharmaceutical company Zoetis Australia who uh, own and distribute the Hendra vaccine have always maintained that the vaccine was safe and effective. It's five to one. Time to go to markets. Let's go to Wagga Sheep and Lambs and Leanne Dax. Good afternoon. 32,000 lambs and 12,000 sheep offered to most of the usual buying group. Quality was notably plainer and it was reflected in the big fluctuations in prices as buyers progressed through the sale. Bidding did intensify for lambs weighing over 26 kilos carcass weight. Well-shaped trade lambs held their values, while planar types were discounted up to $10. Heavy and extra heavy lambs were firm to $5 dearer, odd sales more. Trade lambs, 21 to 24, 170 to 214, 24 to 26, 205 to 242, 26 to 30, 237 to 274, over 30 kilos, 272 to 291. Merino lambs to the trade of small portion 135 to 185 store lambs sold 10 to 15 cheaper with the biggest drop across the lighter weight categories store lambs 70 dollars to 152 merino hoggets 110 to 205 crossbred hoggets 130 to 195 
Trade sheep are fifteen to thirty dollars cheaper, seventy dollars to one hundred eight. Mutton twenty six to thirty kilo, one ten to one thirty. Over thirty kilos, one thirty to one sixty eight. With the sheep sales still in progress, Leandux MLA. Let's go to Dubbo cattle now, Doug Robson. It was a large yarding of 4,300 head, consisting mainly of yearling steers and heifers and a fair penning of cows. Quality is drawn mainly, cattle were drawn mainly from local areas as well as the west. Quality was good in a cheaper market, which varied at times throughout the sale. Most feeder cattle were 15 to 20 cents cheaper, depending on weight and breed. Medium weight feeder steers sold from 420 to 540 cents. Heavy feeder steers 410 to 514. Trade steers topped at 500 cents. Medium weight feeder heifers they sold from 356 to 478 cents. And heavy feeder heifers ranged from 410 to 442, trade up to 504. Only a few grown steers and they sold from 373 to 420 cents. Grown heifers 318 to 400 cents. Cows are 20 to 25 cents cheaper, with heavyweights selling from 306 to 326 cents. Doug Robson at Dubbo. Let's get the details of Yass cattle now. Graham Richard. Good afternoon. Numbers slipped to 416. The quality was good with a large percentage in forward condition and carrying plenty of weight. There were several very good runs of heavy yearlings, a few feeder steers and some light weaners that went back to the paddock. 70 cows were offered, the market sold to a cheaper trend. Weaners to feed on reached 5.99, the yearling steers to feed, 40 cents cheaper on the medium weights, 3.86 to 4.90. The heavyweights slipped just 3 cents on a better run, 4.49 to 4.70. Medium weight feeder heifers fell 50 cents on mixed quality run, 3.80 to 4 dollars. The heavyweights back 30 cents, 3.60 to 4.10. Heavy trade steers lost 20 cents, 4.20 to 4.60. The grown steers and bullocks reached 4.20. Heavy grown heifers to process. 313 to 3.20. Cows fell 40 to 45 cents. The heavyweights, 2.73 to 3.26 for sea muscle. The medium weight two scores, 2.20 to 2.40. And this has been Graham Richard. Let's go to Armadale Cattle now, James Armitage. Good afternoon. Numbers fell by half for a yarding of 450 head. Young cattle for the most part. Quality was fair to good condition, a great variation. The usual processes in attendance. Restocker participation was high. Feed-driven confidence saw vealers sell to deer trends with strong gains in places. 550 to 710 cents for steers over 200 kilos. The heifer portion, a similar trend, selling from 430 to 668 cents. The better quality lightweight yearlings followed suit, while plainer lots were cheaper. 452 to 792 cents a kilo, medium weight steers up to 20 cents cheaper, 472 to 578, heavyweights sold from 430 to 4.98 cents a kilo quality and pre- breed played a large part in a much cheaper trend for yearling heifers, lightweight sea mussels 430 to 6.22, medium weights 455 to 502 cents to restockers substantial falls in the cow market with heavyweights 260 to 300 cents a kilo James Armitage for MLA in Armada and that's the market information for today and uh, you're listening to The Country Hour. A reminder about the Animal and uh, Agriculture Services hotline that provides emergency assistance to farmers impacted by the flood. Uh, you can call 1-800-814-647 between 8am and 6pm, seven days a week to register your need for assistance. 1-800-814-647. We're heading up to news time. News time.